Turn in your Bibles to the book of Colossians. We continue our study in Colossians chapter 1, looking today at verses 5 through 8. Colossians, you'll find in your New Testament, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. If you're using one of our Bibles, it's page 953. What we are talking about today is the most important thing happening in the world right now. Because the most important thing happening in the world right now is the spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ. All over the world, people are hearing the message that we're going to be talking about today, not necessarily from me, but they're hearing it in different ways from the Word of God, and they're making decisions personally to place their faith in Christ, which determines where they will be forever, starting one moment after they die. It is the most important message in the world. It's also very good news. You see, uh, the word gospel, we're going to encounter that word twice in our passage today. The word gospel is simply the Greek word for good news. And if you can know for sure where you're going one moment after you die, that is really, really good news. The book of Colossians, written about A.D. 60 by the Apostle Paul, God inspired him to write to a church in a city called Colossae, hence Colossians. And it was a church that he was not personally involved. Paul did not plant the church in Colossae. But he heard about it, and he wrote to them while he was actually in prison in Rome. He was in prison in Rome because he was proclaiming the same message that we are talking about here today. The gospel of Jesus Christ is that divisive because it is that exclusive. And he wrote to them, we saw in verses 3, 4, and 5, first of all, affirming he had heard good things about them, affirming that he knew about their faith and their love and their hope. And that's kind of where we completed our study last week. The hope of heaven. And the word hope we've discovered is not a word that describes wishful thinking, but hope describes a confident expectation in the New Testament. So when we're going to read in a moment about the hope of heaven, it's the confident expectation of heaven. Let's pick it up in verse 5. The hope that is stored up for you in heaven and that you have already heard about in the word of truth, the gospel that has come to you all over the world, this gospel, good news, is bearing fruit and growing just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and understood God's grace in all of its truth. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. And so that completes a long sentence as Paul writes the beginning of this letter. But he's saying that I am writing to you because something really amazing has happened. It started with you there in Colossae, and it is spreading all over the world, and it all boils down to this hope found in the gospel. So if hope is the assurance or confident expectation of something, and the gospel is the good news, they are confident about 
the gospel, they are confident about heaven. Overall, how many people do you think are really confident that they will be in heaven one moment after they die? Not very many percentage-wise. Can we know for sure that we will be in heaven one moment after we die? That's what it's saying. The hope that is stored up for you in heaven, which you heard about in the word of truth. So who told these people? We read Epaphras told the Colossians. And what is it they heard that gave them the hope, the confidence of heaven? Verse 4 says, I heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. So they heard about putting their faith in Christ Jesus, which gave them the complete confidence that they would spend eternity in heaven. They heard the message of faith in Christ Jesus, which gave them complete confidence they would spend eternity in heaven. That is the message that is the most important in the world, but that seems ridiculously foolish to much of the world. And it is either ridiculously, ridiculously foolish to think that one man who lived 2,000 years ago determines where you will be forever. It's either very foolish or it is the most important and the best thing in the entire world to know. It all depends on another word we see twice. What is the truth? You heard it in the word of truth, the gospel that has come to you. Or at the end of verse 6, God's grace in all of its truth. You see, everything that we're going to discuss today boils down to an underlying assumption that this is the truth. So how do we know if this is the truth? A good way to test whether something is true is to understand the trustworthiness of somebody who claims it. And so we get pretty uh, skeptical of commercials. If they claim this is the best laundry stove, this is the best car, you know, they're being paid to say that. But it changes if it's your mom who tells you the best laundry soap or uh, your uncle, the car guy, who tells you it's the best car. The trustworthiness of the source is a key factor in accepting the truth. So can we believe that Jesus is trustworthy because it was Jesus who claimed that he can give us the assurance of eternal life? Many, many people uh, would say that Jesus was a good man. They believe he existed historically. He was good. Maybe he was great. Maybe he was a prophet. But then they would stop at the next step and they would reject that faith in Christ is the only way to heaven. So they would try to say he is good or he is great or he is a prophet, but they would reject or resist saying that he is the only way to heaven. But is it possible to believe that Jesus is a good man while not believing he's the only way to heaven? C.S. Lewis, the uh, philosopher, framed that question, I think, really, really well in something called a trilemma. And I just want to read a quote from his book, Mere Christianity. He said, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. 
A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic, on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God or else a madman or something worse. He's drawing a very logical conclusion that if Jesus claims to be God and he is not, then something is seriously wrong. We could diagram this uh, trilemma, if you want to call it that, something like this. It starts with this statement, Christ Jesus Christ claimed to be God. We won't go into those passages, but he clearly claimed that he was God. And and people who heard him understood him to say, in that day and in that culture, wait, you're making yourself equal with God. So he claimed to be God, and that was either false or that was true. Any other choices? That's pretty much it. (laughs) It was either true or false if he claimed to be God. If it was false, either he knew it was false or he didn't know it was false. Agreed? If he knew it was false, he's a liar. If he didn't know it was false, but he was still claiming it, that's where the poached egg thing comes in. He's a lunatic. All that remains is that it was true, and he is God. And so a person cannot logically say that Jesus is good, but he's not God. He is either a liar or a lunatic, or he is God. So, If we accept that, he is truly God. What did he claim? He claimed to be the only way to heaven. And so in John 14, we see that Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's the issue that is so divisive today. Well, well, you can't say that. Only Jesus is the way to heaven. No, Jesus is the one who said he is the only way to heaven. So he's exclusive. That's what is divisive. John three thirty six. whoever believes in the Son, referring to Jesus, has eternal life. Whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. There are just simply two roads, two paths, two eternal destinations, and they either are eternal life or eternal wrath. And it all depends on what somebody does with the person of Christ. Will you believe in Christ or will you reject faith in Christ? Jesus said in John 11, he was talking with Martha after Martha's brother Lazarus, Jesus' friend, had died. And he gave her this assurance. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. Whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Jesus was claiming to be the source of life, including life eternal. So if Jesus really was who he said he was, he is God and he claimed to give eternal life, we see how essential and exclusive he really is and how important it is that we understand, that each individual understand the importance of this issue of putting our faith in Christ. This message, while it is controversial, this message is unstoppable. And that's what he goes on to say then in verse 6. The gospel that has come to you. All over the world, this gospel is bearing fruit and growing just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and understood God's grace in all of its truth. So Paul is, a, is expressing his excitement 
And for us, it might be our amazement that already in those early days of the church, the gospel was spreading everywhere, all over the world. If you think of where they are in history, it's only A.D. 60. It's only 30 years after the death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. And it can already be said that it spread all over the then-known world, that basically the Roman Empire. In fact, the gospel had only come to Colossae probably about 10 years before this. They had never met Jesus, of course, so they heard about Jesus through their uh, hometown son, Epaphras, that we read about in verse 7. He was from Epaphras, and we talked about last week that probably Epaphras heard about the gospel of Jesus Christ when Paul was teaching in, in Ephesus, because Paul spent about two years there teaching, and it says that the gospel spread throughout Asia during that time. Most likely, the gospel came from Epaphras, hearing it in Ephesus, taking it back to Colossae. And so Paul tells Epaphras, Epaphras tells the Colossians, Paul tells the church in Lystra, Paul tells the church in Philippi. And in every way imaginable, the gospel proves itself unstoppable and spreading everywhere. It spread to you. It spread to Wisconsin. It has spread to people as part of our church family in this community in just this past year. It seemingly has spread to a celebrity like Kanye West. It doesn't matter who you are because this is the most important question. No matter who you are, this will be what matters. It's not a fad to talk about Jesus. It wasn't a phase that passed. It wasn't a philosophy among other philosophies It claims to be the only way, and it is bearing fruit. The gospel is producing believers, followers, churches all over the world. This is exactly what Jesus had in mind when he commissioned just 12 men to take this message, this really, really good news, around the world. Some time ago, we were studying in John 13 through 16, Uh, the discussion that Jesus had with his disciples the night before he went to the cross. And what he said to them is, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. He was referring to the fact that they were to take the message of Christ all around the world and it would like, he was speaking about a vine, that whole story of I'm the vine, you are the branches. He says, this, this is going to bear fruit, fruit that will last. I always like to think of this verse as including Open Door Bible Church because it has lasted. And the reason that you and I have, our, have, have placed our faith in Christ and have the confidence of heaven is because what Christ had in mind has been taking place for 2,000 years. And the reason, that the, the, the way that it happens is that not because of people having some special ability, but rather because of the power of the gospel, the power of this message. So Paul wrote to the church in Rome, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God. The gospel message has its own power. God takes the truths that we're talking about today and penetrates hearts over and over, all around the world, one by one. It's the power of God for salvation or for saving to everyone who believes. There's a decision to be made for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, meaning non-Jews. And that's us. Unless you happen to be Jewish, the gospel has spread around the world and we are believers and have confidence of heaven because 
of the power of the gospel. In the New Testament, in the book of Acts, we have the story of this spread of the gospel, the fruit that it bore. Uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John tell the story of the life of Christ, and then each of them end with the the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And uh, then the next book is the book of Acts, which continues the story. In fact, Luke is the one that wrote Acts, tells the rest of the story. Chapter 1 is a real pivotal pivotal book uh, chapter because Jesus is still on earth. He's in his risen new body, but just before he ascends to heaven, he commissions his disciples in another way and says, you will be my, what? Witnesses, meaning you're going to tell people about me. And you're going to do it in Jerusalem, the city where they were. And you're going to do it in the uh, surrounding uh, Judean area, like a state. So Jerusalem and Judea. And then the neighboring area, Samaria. And then he says it's going to go to the ends of the earth or the uttermost parts of the earth. Well, how did that work out? If you keep reading the book of Acts, you find that indeed you have things happening spiritually and the gospel is growing and church grows in Jerusalem. But then persecution comes and people have to leave because of persecution, which gets them into Samaria, eventually to Antioch, which becomes a new home base, chapter 11 of Acts. And out of there, Paul then takes the gospel all over the then known world. The gospel which is bearing fruit and growing just as it has been among you since the day you heard of it. And so they were part of this ongoing story. It's very encouraging to read the book of Acts and just watch the spread of the gospel. So I've put together a few, uh, I think it's like 11 verses that just emphasize the growth of the gospel. Starting in Jerusalem, Acts 2, on day 1, when the Holy Spirit came and the church officially began, so those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So there was a great uh, launch or jump start to the church there in Jerusalem that day. And the Lord added to their number day by day, so it wasn't just that day, those who were being saved, those who were putting their faith in Christ. Acts 4.4, but many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. Count women and children who could understand, you might be at 10,000 or so, right? Rapid expansion in Jerusalem. Acts 5, and more than ever, believers were added to the Lord. Multitudes, they aren't even counting anymore. Multitudes of both men and women. In fact, chapter 6 says the word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly. We're still in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So, of course, these priests growing up in traditional Judaism, believing the Old Testament, will have seen the debates and the animosity that their Pharisees and scribes had against Jesus. And it seems that they won because Jesus is killed. But he rises from the dead. And we see many people coming to faith. And now the priests themselves who were practicing in Judaism are becoming believers in Christ. Well, Acts 9, persecution has begun. Chapter 8 especially. And it says, then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, Galilee and Samaria increased in numbers. So as, as, as Christians, Christian Jews were forced out of Jerusalem, the Great Commission is accomplished, and they're making, indeed, disciples everywhere. 
chapter 11, it goes to uh, the city of Antioch. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. And a great many people were added to the Lord there. The missionary journeys of Paul began in Acts 13, and the word of the Lord is being spread throughout the region. Chapter 14, a multitude, a great multitude of both Jews and Greeks believed. Acts 16, so the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers daily. Do you think it's God's will for more people to get saved in Port Washington, Ozaki County? Do we realize this is our assignment? That the gospel is going to keep bearing fruit and that that is what we are about and this has to be high priority in our lives personally, high priority in our church family because the church is meant to continue to lead people to Christ and the gospel power is unstoppable. But it will be opposed because there is a spiritual battle that takes place. Jesus said that uh, the gates of hell won't be able to stop it. But that tells you there's opposition. And the opposition is to the exclusive nature of the gospel message of faith in Christ alone. And so around the world right now, there is persecution that we don't really get. There are people who are uh, being imprisoned. There are people who are tortured. There are people who are put to death even today for believing in Jesus Christ or teaching that people should believe in Christ. If you are interested in in supporting the persecuted church around the world in prayer or any other way, uh, persecution.com is a website. You can get some stories of what really is going on, Voice of the Martyrs. In fact, really the the first Sunday usually in November is a Sunday that around many, many churches recognize the persecuted church. And we need to be aware of our brothers and sisters around the world and what they go for go through. Meanwhile, here we are on the other side of the world from Jerusalem in Port Washington, Wisconsin, and worshiping Christ. It is growing. It's, it's, it's exciting to sometimes think, and I, I'd encourage you maybe as you're maybe driving to church on a, on a Sunday morning or something, to picture not just you coming to church, not even others who might be coming to church with you and that you're used to, But to picture yourself that in like a 24-hour span or so, all over the globe, picture the globe, there are pockets of believers everywhere. Thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people who come together to do what we did this morning, sing about and worship Jesus Christ and proclaim the gospel and be encouraged in him. Uh, We are on the winning side. We understand the power of the gospel. But while it's happening all around the world, Paul says, he makes it personal. He says, as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and understood God's grace in all of its truth. So he's pointing them to a, a time where, where, where their friend Epaphras had done what we're doing today and proclaiming the gospel. And on that day, they begin to understand the grace of God in all of its truth. Think about that phrase. Understanding the grace of God in all of its truth. There are a lot of churches, even in our communities, a lot of people who might say they worship God or they believe in God. But this phrase is very telling. There must come a time where you hear and understand God's grace 
in all of its truth. Are you sure that you understand God's grace in all of its truth? Are you sure that if you were to die tonight, you would be instantly in the presence of God? D. James Kennedy, a pastor in Florida for for many years, tells his own personal story, how when he was younger, someone asked him a question, and uh, this crucial question has been used to start spiritual conversations many times since, mostly through Dr. Kennedy's influence. Here's the question. If you were to die today and come before God, and he would ask you, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? If you were to come before God and he would say, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? It's a very crucial question. It helps clarify. It helps define the gospel and whether you have responded to the gospel the way uh, we must. Because James Kennedy says he answered the question this way. He said, well, I would tell God I've lived a good life and I keep the Ten Commandments. That's what he said. He later came to realize he gave the wrong answer. Because first of all, no one can keep the Ten Commandments. If you've ever envied anyone, you shall not covet. You've already broken the Ten Commandments. And you probably will some more. So trying to be good or even trying to keep the Ten Commandments is not going to be the answer. Getting this question wrong is a very serious problem. Getting it right is very, very important information. In Colossians 1, in verse 4, Paul says, I heard about your faith in Christ Jesus. Connect that to understanding God's grace in all its truth. Your faith in Christ Jesus is understanding God's grace in all of its truth. So if you believe that living a good life and trying to keep the Ten Commandments is the right answer. You are just expressing that you believe not in Christ Jesus as your salvation, but you believe in you for your salvation because you are going to be good enough. You are going to earn your way in. If you believe that by being a part of a church or being baptized in a church, you somehow in that way can guarantee your way to heaven, then you're not trusting in Christ Jesus. You are trusting in a church. You see, the ultimate issue that divides uh, those who will be in heaven and those who will not is about understanding God's grace in all of its truth. Because religion has completely and continually taught, religion in a general sense, has taught that you need to earn your way in. If you're good enough, you go and then, and then fill in the blank with whatever that religion or that group teaches. But somehow it depends upon us. That is the opposite. To earn it is the opposite than to be given it. To believe it is by grace is the opposite of of believing that it is by good works. And so have you personally understood God's grace in all of its truth? And can you be sure that you will be in heaven one moment after you die? I'd like to kind of walk through a a little... uh, way of understanding this called the bad news and good news. Some of you have heard me share this before, I'm sure. If you have uh, made the crucial decision and understand this clearly, maybe this would be helpful to you to explain it to somebody else. 
But if you have never understood God's grace in all of its truth, uh, I'm praying that you will understand it here today. We must understand two things of the bad news and two points, two points of the good news. The bad news is about us. The bad news is about us. The bad news is, first of all this, we must acknowledge, I am a sinner. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The glory of God describes the standard required of God. The glory of God describes his perfectness. This first piece of bad news completely changes the playing field from what almost everyone grows up thinking. Because it turns out not that I can not only can I not earn my salvation, no one can earn their salvation because we all fall short of the perfect standard. Heaven is perfect, and nobody with any sin is allowed in a perfect environment. We all fall short. I've pictured it sometimes, like we took everybody in the room here, and we all went out to Lake Michigan, and each of us had a baseball in our hands, and we were given our instructions to throw the baseball over Lake Michigan. Some of us would maybe throw it three times farther than somebody else, but all of us would fall short, and all those balls would be in Lake Michigan because no one can do that. And in a similar way, no matter how good somebody, somebody is, they will all fall short of God's standard. The bad news gets worse because the penalty of my sin is eternal death. So not only are all sinners and don't have, are, can never be good enough for heaven, the fact is we all actually deserve eternal judgment in a place that Jesus called hell. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. And in Romans 6.23, there's a contrast between eternal life and eternal death. It's a contrast between heaven and hell. So the reality is we are all sinners, and actually everybody deserves eternal punishment. And hell is real. No one in Scripture talked about hell more than Jesus Christ himself. So that is the situation if all we knew was the bad news. And because we cannot fix our own spiritual situation, we cannot come to God, he came to us. And that is what Jesus Christ is all about. Because Jesus Christ is the eternal son of God, and he came to bring the good news, gospel, good news of salvation. And it boils down to this, he died to pay the penalty for my sin. That's what he came to do. Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. As we're only looking at the bad news, we could begin to understand the justice of God. And the justice of God is very real in that because he is completely holy and just, and a good God is holy and just, punishes sin, because he's holy and just, he must punish all sin. But that's not the only characteristic of God. He is not only just, he is also loving. And the only way that he could uphold both his justice and his love for us is through Jesus Christ. And so that was the plan of God for salvation, that God would be completely just and he would indeed punish all sin, but he would take all of our sin and put it upon Jesus, his eternal son. We cannot pay for our own sin. 
Only Christ can pay for our sin because Christ was God. He could take upon himself the sins of mankind, but because he was man, he could actually die. And so what was happening on the cross is that God was pouring out his justice upon Jesus and our sin was being paid for. So when it says Christ died for us, it means he died instead of us. He died in our place. He bore the penalty of our sin. So that was accomplished and Jesus Christ paid the full satisfying payment to, to, uh, uh, for our sin on the cross and for the whole world. Now, that brings us to the second part of the good news and it's the most important in terms of our response to him. And that is this. I can have eternal life by trusting in Jesus Christ alone. And that's the only way you can have eternal life. And so we look at John 3.16 that we sometimes see like uh, on an NFL game or someplace where they just put the John 3.16 out there. I hope many people look it up because it's crucial and it explains the gospel story uh, really well. For God so loved the world, fill in your name, that he gave his one and only son, that's the cross and what Jesus accomplished on the cross by paying for our sins. He loved us So he gave us Christ who paid for our sin that whoever believes in him shall not perish. That's hell, but have eternal life. That's heaven. The crucial issue in terms of the decision is this one. Do you believe in him? Or do you believe in you? Or do you believe in a church or a ritual or experience or an effort? Have you believed in Christ? To believe in Christ does not simply believe, mean to believe that there was a Christ or I believe that he died for my sins. To believe means to put your trust in what Jesus did for you. He died for your sins and he rose again proving he'd paid, made the payment. What are you trusting in to get to heaven? That becomes the final question. What are you personally trusting in to have eternal life in heaven. One more verse in Ephesians clarifies this. It is by grace, grace means unmerited, undeserved. It is by grace you have been saved through faith. So grace is what God is offering, the gift of salvation because the the gift of, of forgiveness is through Christ. But it appropriated or put upon yourself by faith, a choice, a decision you need to make to put your faith in him. By grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from ourselves, it's a gift from God, specifically not by works, so that no one can boast. If we were saved by our own efforts, then in heaven you could kind of say, there I did it. Instead in heaven, everybody's going to be giving all the credit to Jesus Christ, that in the coming ages we might see the surpassing riches of his grace in Christ Jesus is the verse that precedes Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. So, what are you trusting in? Let me show a diagram that we sometimes look at, three circles. The three circles represent what people sometimes believe. So the question for you is, are you a C? A W or a C plus W? Are you trusting in Christ that he paid for your sins on the cross? Or are you trusting in good works? Or are you trusting in Christ plus good works? Because sometimes people, I want it all. 
What does the verse say? By grace you are saved through faith. It's a gift of God, not by works. And by the way, that also precludes Christ plus works because the third circle is really the same as the second. Because that means you are putting your trust ultimately in myself. I'm the deal breaker, so if I don't have good works, I still don't have salvation. So really, why did Christ have to die? The point is that Christ has paid for our sins and he alone, and we must put our faith in Christ alone. What are you trusting in? And would this be the time when you will understand God's grace in all of its truth and put your faith in Christ? In 2010, many of us heard the news story when those 33 miners in Chile were buried when a ramp going to the mine, everything collapsed, and they were buried some 2,300 feet underground. And it seemed so hopeless, even though they were able to establish contact with them, it seemed so hopeless because how are we going to get them out? But some engineers designed a capsule that then they were able to dig a tunnel down to the, the, the room, the area where they were still alive. And this tunnel came in there and the capsule came in carrying one person at a time. And so on October 13 of 2010, as it broke through and the capsule came down, one at a time, each man had to put himself in that capsule and the capsule would take him up and all 33 men were saved. Their lives were saved by that. It's a good picture of what happens in salvation because there was nothing we could do to fix our spiritual condition. And God, in His magnificent wisdom and sovereign plan, had designed the only way we could have eternal life. And so He is the one that provided Jesus Christ the only solution What do we have to do? We have to personally place our faith in Christ. It's a decision, just like each of those men had to personally put themselves in this position and do nothing on their own, just let the capsule take them up. And so they would give the credit to those who engineered, designed, and found them and took them up. God, through Jesus Christ, has done it all for you. Will you put your trust in Him Alone. It's the most important question. It's the very best news. If today you would put your faith in Him. And so I would just urge you today to make that decision. If it has never been completely clear, if you are understanding grace and in all of its truth today, you have a decision to make. Will you put your faith in Christ alone? Not Christ plus good works, not Christ plus a church, not Christ plus a baptism. But will you put your faith in Christ only? It's a decision that doesn't include any magic words. doesn't mean you have to walk down an aisle. It means that what you want to do, God sees your heart. He sees your mind. And in, in a silent prayer at this moment, you can simply decide submitting to the only way that God provides eternal life and say, I'm putting my faith in Christ alone. And if you do that, I would really urge you to tell somebody here at the church, myself or one of the other pastors or a friend you know, and we'd love to help you to grow in your faith. If you have any other questions, you're saying, yeah, I get that, but I wonder about this, and 
there's something, please do talk to somebody. We'd love to be able to answer your questions. If this is the most important thing happening in the world, that people are hearing the gospel, what becomes the most important task for us? To share the gospel. Verse 7, you learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who's a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf. Epaphras isn't mentioned often three times in the New Testament, twice in this book because he's from Colossae, and once in the book of Philemon, a man who's also from Colossae. And Paul describes him in three different terms. One is this one where he's now called a fellow servant, so he's a partner with Paul. In Philemon 23, he's called a fellow prisoner with Paul. I don't think that he was actually incarcerated with Paul, but he was probably there in Rome at the same time and serving Paul. But the one that I really love is here in the middle of verse 7. He is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf. What could be more important than for you to be called a faithful minister or servant of Jesus Christ? When someone does something good for you, you say thank you. If they do something that's really big and good for you, you say sincere thank you and you write them a card. What if somebody gives you eternal life? He deserves the service of our life and nothing would please him more than to be involved in sharing the message of the gospel. And I know that's what so many of you uh, are involved in. The reason you, you serve uh, in different roles in the church here, the reason you serve one another, the reason you serve uh, maybe other ministries or people in the community can be because you are showing the love of Christ. But the most important resource for getting this message out is y'all. Because you know people. And you know people who have not understood God's grace in all of its truth. And I just urge you to begin to uh, pray for people you know that God puts on your heart. Think of ways to be in contact with them, to build relationships with them. Just love them. That doesn't be weird or awkward. Maybe invite them to church. Invite them to a group that you're a part of in church or something. Invite them to the Christmas, uh, ladies' Christmas dinner, or whatever it might be. And, and just to begin to see what God might do to use you as a faithful servant of Jesus Christ, the highest, highest honor of all. Life is short. Accidents, we've heard in our own community this past week, and instantly a life can be gone. And there's nothing more important than this most, most important, really, really good news of Jesus Christ and his saving grace for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for your amazing plan of salvation that you would love us, uh, knowing our name from before you created the world and uh, putting us into this world, into the family, into the situation that we are in, uh, and then in some special way bringing the message of the gospel to us. Thank you for many uh, just in the room here today who have put their faith in you and you used different people in their lives I pray for any who has not, have not placed their faith personally in Christ that they would make that decision today in the quietness of their heart. And I pray that for each of us that we would uh, consider ourselves uh, appointed and, as, and assigned by you to faithfully proclaim uh, your grace in all of its truth. In Jesus' name, amen.